We are in the campus of the De Montfort University in Leicester. The noise that we hear around is from students coming and going. My name is Hayan Rukhan. I'm from Syria. I've been living in the UK for about five years now. I came here to do my PhD in international relations around 2012. I completed my PhD just last summer. And in September, I started working for the University of Leicester as a teaching fellow in international relations. I come from Palmyra and lived all my life there. Palmyra is located in the middle of Syria, in the middle of the desert of Syria. It has a small population of 70,000 people. It's a very beautiful city. It has a beautiful oasis that has palm trees and olive trees. It used to attract thousands of tourists before the uprising and the civil war started in Syria. In 2009, I came to the UK to do a master in international development, and I went back to Palmyra to work in the development sector. Only a few months after I went back, the uprising started, which turned into a civil war. The majority of the protesters who went to the street in the, in the early days of the uprising were young people who did not have any jobs, who were not educated as well, who were frustrated with their life, I would say, in a way or another. And when these protesters went to the street, the regime responded with the same level of repression that it did in other parts of the country by shooting at them arresting some of them, torturing some as well to death and giving their bodies back to their families. A lot of these protesters who were repressed by the regime decided to carry arms to fight against the regime and they established a militia that took the oasis as a place for it to hide and to conduct attacks. In February 2011 the regime decided to send big unit of the army in order to take Palmyra completely from the rebels. The city was besieged maybe for about four weeks, I would say. We didn't have any electricity uh, or water or internet for a long period of time. And the regime since then managed to capture Palmyra completely, which was relatively quiet until ISIS managed to capture the city in 2015. Palmyra benefited for a long time from the fact that it's not a border town or city, so it was very difficult for many militias from the Free Syrian Army or any other Islamic militias to capture the city until ISIS started to rise in the country and capture the eastern part of the country. This is when Palmyra started to become a border city between ISIS-controlled area and regime-controlled areas. This is when ISIS put Palmyra on its list of places that it wanted to capture. It was a shock for the people of Palmyra when the city was taken by ISIS in 2015. It's something that they have never expected to happen. I wouldn't say that the people of Palmyra have particularly liked the regime, but they have been pleased with the stability that Palmyra had at that time. And they didn't want to go through the same thing that other Syrian cities had been through. When ISIS took the city, the regime, ground forces have withdrawn suddenly from the city and completely, but that didn't mean that the regime stopped fighting. The regime started shilling Palmyra from uh, long distance by planes and by rockets, and there was uh, indiscriminate bombing that have led to the death of hundreds of civilians from the people of Palmyra. At the same time, ISIS fighters started arresting many local people from Palmyra accusing them of collaborating with the regime just because they were actually civil servants working for the government and have executed many of them publicly in the street. So the people were stuck in between the regime and ISIS. 
some of them escaped to the desert where they still camp now in a refugee camp called Arukban, close to the Jordanian borders, where Jordan did not allow them to enter its lands for security reasons. And they are not able to go back to Palmyra because Palmyra at a later stage has been taken by Iranian and regime and Russian militias. And so far, local people have not been allowed to go back to the city. So people have been stuck in a very difficult position where they're not able to go back and they can go to regime-controlled areas because if they have a male member of the family who is over the age of 18, they could be taken to the army to fight against ISIS, which is something that a lot of people don't want to do. A lot of people do not want to get involved in the fighting. For a long period of time, my family members have been a bit worried about the fact that I am based in the UK and that I'm conducting research of political nature about Syria, that some of my family members would be arrested by the regime for that and interrogated. It didn't happen. But then when ISIS took Palmyra, they were probably more concerned because I have already been conducting research on ISIS and I've already had some papers published on the topic. So they wanted to escape as soon as possible. The first thing they did is that they tried to get closer to the Turkish borders. They made it to Raqqa and then from Raqqa they made it to Idlib. And then from Idlib they crossed to Turkey and that was like um, a journey that they did large part of it by walking. They told me about so many hills that they had to climb, so many forests that they had to go through in the evening. They have been questioned by the Turkish army while crossing the borders. All their belongings have been confiscated at that time. When they arrived to Turkey, my brother Phil actually on the way, he had his ankle broken. It was a difficult time, I would say, for them. It was a long journey that has probably taken them about one month and a half in order to make it to Turkey. They lived in Turkey for a couple of years. They registered with the United Nations Refugee Resettlement Program. Their application has been sent to different countries and luckily enough they have been accepted by the UK. They arrived here recently and they've been very happy since then. In my research I mainly looked at the Arab Sunni tribes in the eastern part of the country and the southern part of the country where the uprising mainly started in Dara'a where tribal ties have played an important role in igniting the uprising and leading the protest movement at a later stage. So I look at how the uprising started in Dara'a from a tribal perspective. Dara'a community composes of many tribes and clans. When the uprising started it happened as a result of the fact that there were some children who wrote anti-regime slogans on the walls of the schools and the regime arrested these children and tortured them. Many of the tribal elders sent some of their representatives to meet up with the regime and ask the regime security officers to release the children. The tribal leaders took the headscarves off and asked the regime officers to release their children. The tribal leaders in Syria consider the headscarves as a symbol of dignity and honor as well. And usually when tribal leaders do this, it's expected from the other person to respond in respect and to give them what they want. But what the regime officers have done basically is that they've taken these headscarves and they put them in the bin, which was a sign of humiliation for the tribes. And as a result, these tribal leaders have organized protests against the regime in order to release the children of the tribes.
I published a paper recently called From Reform to Revolt, Bashar al-Assad and the Arab Tribes in Syria. And in that paper, I look at the difference between the policies of Hafez al-Assad and Bashar al-Assad. When Hafez al-Assad, the father of the current president, came to rule Syria in 1970, he came from the rural areas himself. He came from a village himself. So he created an alliance with the rural people, and that consisted of the tribes. A lot of people from that part of the country, from Deir zor have joined the army and the intelligence services in large number. They have benefited as well from the regime services in terms of employment, health sector, education. The difference between Hafez and his son Bashar is that his son Bashar has followed new policies of liberalization and privatization that have mainly focused on the major cities, Aleppo, Damascus, and have neglected the rural areas. So he has basically neglected the legacy of his father of supporting the rural areas. And it is these areas in Deir Zor, for example, that have risen against the regime. During my interviews with some people from the tribes of Deir Zor and why they decided to join the uprising, they talked about not benefiting from the oil reserves that have been in their region. That large part of oil and gas concessions have been given to companies that basically employed people from the Syrian coast. They were referring to Alawites. They talked about how so many jobs were taken by people coming from the cities. They talked about lack of development in their areas. They talked about high rates of poverty. They talked about how the drought hit the region around 2003. As a result, these areas have been impoverished and the regime has been unresponsive to the suffering of the people there. When the Arab Spring happened, people were hoping that they would be able to get some change. There are two main tribes that inhabit Deir Zor. One of them is called Al-Baggara and its sheikh is called Nawaf al-Bashir. At that time, he was forced to appear on state media to give declarations that support the regime. And at a later stage, he managed to escape to Turkey, where he announced the opposition to the regime. He opposed the regime for many years, but he has been recently invited by the regime to go back to Syria. And he is currently working on recruiting people from his tribes to fight with the regime militias in different parts of the country, uh, particularly around Deir Zor. The other one is called Agedat. One of its leaders was Nawaf al-Faris, who was the Syrian ambassador to Iraq. As soon as the Syrian uprising started and when the regime started repressing the protesters in Deir Zor, he wasn't able to stand there and watch his relatives being killed by the regime on a daily basis. So he defected from the Syrian regime and he has taken an opposition position from Qatar and he's been living in Qatar since then. One of the main findings of my PhD research on the relationship between the state and the tribes is that the state in Syria has failed over a period of 60 or 70 years in creating a national identity that gather all the Syrians. This has to do with the fact that Syria was ruled by authoritarian regime that have manipulated sectarian and tribal ties in order to survive. One of the mechanisms to rule the country was to revive and strengthen these tribal and sectarian ties and use them to rule, basically divide and rule. They didn't want the Syrians to have a national identity because having a national identity could have posed a threat to the regime which could have led to a change in a different way, in a peaceful way, I would say.
the conflict in Syria is no longer civil war between Syrian actors. It has turned into an international proxy war between different international and regional actors. This complicates state-tribe relations because tribes have taken different positions and different loyalties depending on the area that they are based in. For example, some of the tribes that are close to the Kurdish militias in the north have sided with the Kurdish militias like Shammar tribe. Some of the tribes that are in Raqqa that are close to Turkey have sided with the Turkish army and they are currently engaged in the Turkish intervention in Syria. In the southern part of the country, some of the tribes have been armed and trained by the Jordanian army and they control particular areas that the Americans and the Israelis probably don't want the regime to take because they want to have this area as a buffer zone between Israel and the regime. It seems that the regime will continue to rule large part of the country due to Russian and Iranian support. And the regime is already trying to invite tribal leaders that have escaped the country to come back to Syria and use them as a way to recruit people to join the Syrian army using them as a way as well to rule the areas where the Syrian regime would not be able to deploy large units like Derzor or even parts of Raqqa countryside that have already been taken by the regime. Unfortunately, because the Syrian uprising has failed in achieving democratic transition in Syria, and it's most likely that the regime will continue to rule Syria for probably decades to come, the regime will continue instrumentalizing and playing on tribal and sectarian identities in order to rule the Syrian community. As I talk to you now, we hear the news every day coming from Ghouta about large number of civilians dying in Syria. But there is always hope amid what is happening. For example, a few days ago I was with a taxi driver who is originally from Somalia, who's been living in the UK for 30 years. When I asked him whether he's been to Somalia since coming to the UK or not, he said that he goes actually to Somalia now every year. And although things are not completely stable there, he said that things have been much better than they were when he left. He reassured me and gave me some hope that I will be able to go back to Syria and take my son to see Palmyra again and look at the beautiful oasis and watch the beautiful sunset in Palmyra. Every civil war will end one day and I'm hopeful that the international actors that are involved in the Syrian civil war will reach to an agreement that will end this suffering and this tragedy that the Syrians have gone through for many years.